Hey guys, it's Marleya. Hey, it's Patrice. And like we how you are, pointed to me I like, pointed. Like, go, go. Remember, you gotta say your name. Talk. <laughs> so we're just back from Nashville, where we did a live show at the Podex Convention, and Yay. we will tell you all about how that went in our next show episode 24 and this is episode 23 which is the actual live show and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed doing it have fun bye it's, it's go time it's go time oh i can stop this now <laughs> <laughs> i can stop being friendly <laughs> we're not naturally friendly <laughs> All right. If you are looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghost, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if y'all can live with that, then welcome to the Strange South. And also, the last one we went to was um, in, in NPR, Nashville, Nashville Public Radio. And um, y'all be loud as you want. If you think we're ridiculous, laugh at us. I'm like, do whatever right. you want. You can be loud. You, you don't, don't have, have to, to be, be quiet. Yes, you don't have to be quiet. All right. So, so go. I'm Patrice Anderson. I'm Marleya Blades. And um, yeah, yeah, we're each, here. Yeah, each week we get together and we drink Southern libations and swap creepy old and uniquely Southern stories. About like monsters and myths and murders and all kinds of mess. Yes. We, we kind of run the gamut, so. We do, know. we do. And this week we are here live at Pod X. Sober. No. Well, not really sober. We did kind of have a drunk lunch, so. Uh, yeah, we're not used to doing this without We are not, yes. Assistance. We definitely have a day drink when we, um, (laughs) and we're usually in the basement and very comfortable in our yoga pants. And so this is like full makeup hair. This is a completely different experience for us. Um, Oh, we also, um, so uh, PodX wants to make sure that we let everybody know that uh, we have horribly foul language. And so if there's anything that you don't like to hear, we apologize. You're welcome to go (laughs) at any time. We're not going to judge you. Scanned the room. There are no children here. So So we're clear. I I think we're pretty safe unless you have sensitive sensibilities I don't mm-hmm. know. um but i'd want to thank podcasts i mean really pod x we didn't mean to really do this <laughs> we were just like somebody says hey y'all should do a conference and we were like okay and this came up i was like just throw our i mean who we'll just see what happens we've only been doing this since december so we're like babes in the woods here and we really don't know what we're doing and they picked us and we're like holy shit (laughs) now what happens and then it was kind of like suckers (laughs) (laughs) but um we are extremely grateful to be here and we thank pod x and we're hopefully we'll get to be here they won't kick us out after this yeah crossing fingers crossing fingers fingers so do you have any post-mortem uh, the I, I don't think I have anything from the last time. Um, we do have a, a 
so we have our bartender who travels with us as part of our entourage. This is bartender Courtney. Bartender and Courtney. We normally have a friend who we call box fan Chad. And since a lot of you are from the South, you might recognize why the box fan part is so important. But um, it's just sort of the thing that goes with you every time you go anywhere. Yes. But um, box fan Chad would have loved to be here this weekend. He is not. He is camping. He sent me a picture of his box fan that he's taking camping with him. Oh. And um, he normally, um, he, he isn't a part of our show. He's a good friend of mine that suddenly started sending me like book length texts after every single show that we did telling me all these things about you know that I didn't know about when I did it so usually we do a little update of his and uh, I guess the only thing he really sent me this week was it was decoration last week and I guess so unless southerners you know what decoration is probably but for those of you that don't decoration is like the, the day where you go back to your family's grave sites and put out flowers and all kinds of stuff and the first time I'm, I'm originally from the military, um, but mostly Virginia. And um, it was right outside of DC, so I don't count. Like, I didn't get the Southern, you know, until I moved to Alabama, which is where both of us are situated now. Right. So I didn't know what decoration was. But um, I didn't know where you're going with that. So, no, that, that, well, Chad, Chad sent me pictures from oh, okay. decoration last week all right. of all these weird graves oh, that Memorial he found kind of, at yes. Cuca Graveyard. Yeah, outside of Wills Creek, Alabama. Um, so, and one of, them, one of them was listed. The interesting ones he sent me pictures of were there was one that said, slave of the family, died 1834, second burial here. Mm. And so that was when I was like, we're going to need to go over there and figure out what the hell that was about. But um, yeah, so he just sent me interesting pictures. Oh, and that's our wow. Box Fan chat update for this well, week, speaking which I didn't want to leave out. Fans, like if you're not from the South, usually like we travel with the Box Fans. Like anywhere we go, we have to have that breeze and that sound. It and, would feel really good right now. Yes. And we went to our Airbnb um, last night, which, by the way, the street that our Airbnb on is called Fatherland. <laughs> And all I could think of was like, blessed be in his eye, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we literally went to YouTube and there is a nine hour box fan no noise <laughs> that you can do. So it's like the Yule log video. Yes, it is like the Yule log. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I guess we better get started. Oh, and I guess we should explain to you, since you guys don't know who the fuck we are, um, that um, <laughs> we just basically choose stories each week, bizarre, random things, as we said, but we don't talk to each other in advance about what we're going to talk about, so I have no idea what she's doing. Right. Um, it's kind of a surprise. Get to, It's a little party that we have each week. It is. It's really nice. Day drink, tell spooky, sometimes crazy stories. Sober up in time for the school bus. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> secrets <laughs> okay so i go first this week do it i'm gonna preference this by i hate snakes okay i have stepped on a snake barefoot growing up my uncle as a boy got bit by a baby water moccasin snake and spent weeks in the hospital um I see snakes everywhere. Actually, since we moved from Mississippi to Alabama, I see more snakes in Alabama than I did basically living in the swamps in Mississippi. That's odd. It's really odd, yeah. But I see snakes everywhere. Every stick is a snake. I mean, I'm like, <laughs> I am paranoid when it comes to um, snakes. So, of course, what fascinates us what scares us, mm -hmm. fascinates us, so blessed be the serpent. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, with that in mind, I'm going to be talking about the coots and the Appalachian snake handlers. Go for it. I've been waiting for that. Okay, so the origins of serpent handling is actually an old folk tradition of the Appalachian Mountains, but... 
and this is something I learned, it really didn't recently um, started um, having a ritualized handling of snakes until 1910. So, and this was taken up by, um, or first started with a moonshiner who turned uh, (laughs) Pentecostal minister, which is what you do, right? (laughs) Um, uh, Named George Hensley. So George Hensley in 1910 started to, um, and kind of the backstory, like 1910 is in the South, especially two people got excited for two things. They got excited for the circus and the sideshows, and they got excited for the evangelist, the tent that, revival, the tent revival yeah. that came to town. So, um, old George started using serpents in his sermons, traveling around, and um, he justified the serpent handling by pointing to the verse in the Bible, Mark 16, 18. So if you don't know your Bible, which is okay, I don't know my Bible either. Um, <laughs> they shall take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Mm-hmm. So it's um, a test. It is a test. However, by 1955, there had been at least 35 confirmed deaths um, as a result Ooh. of snake handling during sermons. Sinners. And one of them, unfortunately, was 75-year-old Hensley himself, oh. who was killed by a five-foot rattlesnake during a sermon in Florida. Wow. Yes. So apparently this is also a thing. It's a male thing of how big your snake is. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it there, Okay. <laughs> So by the mid 50s, Pentecostal communities were like saying, nope, this you're killing people. You know, so they disavowed the practice. It became illegal in all the uh, Appalachian states, uh, except West Virginia for some reason. And so it's banned. It's illegal. Um, And everybody thought kind of the practice would die. It was kind of a fluke, kind of a fad thing that they were doing, right? However, in rural communities in Appalachia, um, they started developing the old traditions. Like underground snake handling. Underground snake handling. It was kind of like a rogue, you know, rebel thing to do. And even though um, they did this, nobody like talked to each other. They so they started developing. <laughs> nobody talks their, about snake club. Nobody talks about <laughs> snake club. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, but talking about um, the areas that I'm going to be talking about is around the Cumberland Gap, which if you don't know that, that's basically where Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia meet up. And this is, I thought I was talking about Tennessee with this, but it's actually right there um, across the line in Kentucky. Uh, that <laughs> that population is mostly white, um, is undereducated, it's poor. Uh, 10% of their residents have graduated from college compared to the 33% nationwide. They have 66% of their graduation or have graduated from uh, high school compared to the 88%. Um, y'all know where I'm going with this, right? So 45% of the population lives in poverty. 60% of the working age population has no job opiates are rampant and so is meth Mm. and this is kind of feeds into the snake handling um and it feeds into some of what i'm going to talk about the coots family 
Nobody knows the coots fill me. Do they? Like personally? Coots? Personally, yeah. I was thinking, I was kind of having a little panic attack. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what if a coot is there? <laughs> yes. I was like, sorry. Okay. But, you know, it's out there. You know, this comes from a really good article, and I'll post it on our website where I got a lot of this information. And also, Bitter Southerner, who we love, Bitter also did Southern an article awesome. um, on snake handling. So, um, Cody Coote and his family have worshipped and handled snakes for and drank strychnine. So the drinking Whoa. of the deadly thing is usually strychnine. And they've preached for generations. And it started with uh, Cody Coote's great-grandfather, Tommy Coots. We're going through, like, this is a southern thing, okay? We're going through genealogy here. Tommy begat Cody. <laughs> right, begat. Tommy begat Cody. Um, <laughs> and he turned the church over and his congregation over to his son, Greg, who I deemed the smart coots because <laughs> Greg just wanted to sing and play his guitar during service, and he was not interested in handling snakes. So Greg turned it over to his son, Jamie, And Jamie is the father of Cody, who we're going to talk about Jamie and Cody. Um, When Jamie got it, he uh, preached and um, did his sermon for like 20 years and handled snakes for 20 years. So basically, Cody grew up in this environment all his life. He knew nothing but, um, you know, church and snake handling in that community. Um, and growing up, Cody did not like to, um, preach. He didn't want to preach. He didn't want to like follow his father's footsteps or anything. He did like catching snakes. He's (laughs) quoted and said it is the ultimate adrenaline rush. However, as Cody grew up and got older, um, when he turned 18, he wanted to give it a try. So one of the good things about the snake handling community, they do not let children handle snakes. And if you don't want to handle snakes, you don't have to. I mean, that's not like you have to do it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't pertain to anybody except who wants to do it. At what age are you no longer a child, I wonder? 18. 18. Oh, thank God. I was like, because that age of, what was it? The age of accountability, right, is normally like 10 or 11. So I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But I'm much younger. I'm sure he went out catching snakes with his dad, right? Um, So snake handling in church is done only when the spirit is called. You don't have to like do it every time. If you don't have the spirit in you, you do not have to do it. Um, Cody says you really have to make yourself right you know, you have to be in the right mindset. You have to have like the Zen. You have to be right with yourself and I don't you have think to be Zen is what they're... right with God. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, you know, because you are taking up this serpent is literally giving your life over to a higher power. Amen. It is like Russian roulette with fangs. Mm. And Cody describes this as being like in a completely peaceful zen-like state this is like as close as you get to living faith wow with handling serpents the way they describe it um so when you take drugs or if you've ever taken drugs i'm not gonna like take names or anything but (laughs) raise hands raise hands um you know the first time you take it you get that high and then you want to chase that high but you have to take more drugs and the more drugs you take the worse off it gets and then you know you're addicted and it's like a never-ending cycle of you chasing that high when you handle snakes they say it's something better than drinking smoking or taking pills um it's a feeling of invincibility it's a false feeling obviously <laughs> very but it is like a feeling of inci- um, invincibility what's the i mean what's the raising the stakes there like you want more and more like you eventually get to like anaconda level uh-huh. 
Well, they just squeeze you to death. Well, you just get like a larger snake, right? Yeah. Long, like the 10 foot rattlesnake. The 10 foot rattlesnake. Okay. So Jamie, during this time, um, obviously 18 years old, he's still the pastor of their small congregation. And he's had several close calls. And like George Hensley, he always refuses medical treatment. Now, this is not something that's like written by law. This is just like his own personal belief. He's like, if it's my time, um, it's my time. And, you know, he doesn't want a man to interfere with that or a woman doctor. Um, Definitely not. (laughs) Definitely not. So, uh, you know, he's been bitten several times. He got bit in the hand once that the tip of his finger actually actually eventually fell off, um, never went to the doctor. Um, and he said, Jamie says, like, I don't actually want to die from a serpent bite, but I'd rather die and leave this walk of life with these serpents, with a serpent bite, knowing that there are people standing around me praying than in a car wreck and people standing around me cussing. Okay. Is that what you do to car wreck? I don't know. Like, maybe, the way, maybe the way he drives, I've never done right? that. Um, he says, I'd rather die in a spiritual atmosphere, even if that means by a serpent bite. So in 2013, National Geographic aired a reality show about Jamie and other snake handlers in the community, and it's called Snake Salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have not watched it. I like to watch my fantasy, scary stuff, fantasy, <laughs> not like fantasy reality, scary stuff. Um, and it was only lasted one season. It was canceled, obviously, because it was making something that's extremely dangerous popular. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still illegal to handle poisonous snakes for worship. In 2014, the next year, Jamie Coots, after the um, show was over, was bitten for the ninth and final time. Oh, no. He was handling three snakes at once, and one of them bit him in his thumb. He collapsed. He refused medical treatment, um, said that God would heal him or take him. Jamie's last words were, Lord, come by. Oh, God, no. And his final words were, sweet Jesus. In what way, I wonder? They did not. Everything, but there was no, like, exclamation point. It was all, like, period. So I don't know if it was, like, serious. I mean, obviously it was serious. He was, like, dying, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So Cody now has to take up this responsibility. He's expected to take up this responsibility of leading the congregation. And Cody is the one that likes catching snakes but doesn't like preaching. Is that the one? He he wasn't really, you know, he handled snakes, but he just wanted to do it to see what it was like. You know, he's 18 years old. This happens, he was only 21 at the time. So he's 21, he has a wife, he has a child, he has a full-time job hauling furniture at Easy Rentals. Mm -hmm. So he, you know taking up the responsibility of a snake handling congregation at 21. I mean, you have to like think about what you were doing near 21, right? It was like, it was a lot. And, um, you know, being a pastor, like you have to, you know, listen to your congregations at all hours of the night. Um, you have to give advice, but his dad was prepping him for this. His mm-hmm. dad, you know, when he was growing up, tell him, you know, what to say, how do you handle certain people? How do you handle calls? How do you handle the police when somebody gets bitten yeah, be, uh, and they, or somebody dies? There's a certain way. And Cody, you know, was taught this and he knew all of that. However, like six months later, um, Cody got bit and he got bit in the back of the head 
And oh when my he, God. And when he pulled the Rattler out mid sermon, um, he got actually not back at, I'm sorry, he got bit near the, his eye socket. Oh, he pulled the snake off. Yeah. He pulled the snake off and then it bit him again in the ear. And he continued to preach for three minutes and then he passed out. Oh, wow. But he said, he was saying he didn't want any doctors like his dad, but the congregation, thank God, didn't want to listen to him. And they're like, God made doctors. Mm-hmm. One's going to save your life. So they took him to the doctor. He spent like 10 days in um, the hospital, missed a bunch of work. And when he got out, he was very different. Um, his mind had changed. Like it did something to his brain. Uh he saw everyone as a threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought people were, were going to break into his house. He would like stay up with the gun in front of the front door because he thought somebody was going to break into his house and kill his entire family. He stopped going to church. He started collecting guns. Um, he found himself like consumed with this violence, and he was just looking for an excuse to inflict pain. Uh, just anything. Somebody cut him off in traffic. He would. Oh, there oh, yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a controlled blast there will during be your podcast. Blast during this we should have, it was at one o'clock exactly. We should have counted it down. We should have, right? Okay. Um, so he got, you know, cut off in traffic. Uh, or if he got cut off in traffic, he would tell them, you know, you'd be that jerk that like would always like be right there on your bumper um, and follow you and just fantasized about like, you know, flipping your car off the road or whatever. I don't know. He slashed his aunt's tires because she like made him upset. Oh my God. He started saying fuck and bullshit. <laughs> He started listening to songs about drugs and sex, and he sang along. <laughs> he went to an ACDC concert. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's over, right? I mean, he's 21. I mean, that's like what you do when you're 21, right? And then he started questioning the existence of God. Well, and I was going to say, I would imagine that that's the kind of stuff that would come out of like being raised, believing that, you know, God was going to save people who got bit by rattlesnakes and then seeing your dad and then having you get bit twice. I mean, right. Where, you know, drinking and cussing and rock music is just like a Monday at our house, right? (laughs) Right. Ain't going to kill you. (laughs) Ain't going to kill you at all. Right. So obviously Cody was lost because the church was his home. Even when he sinned, even when he went drinking, and he did that. He wasn't the perfect person. He would go off and go on benders. Um, but the church was his home, and it always took him back. And with him starting to question God, he started to lose the belief in home. Um and so with this, it, that scared him. Mm. So he started going back, um, even though he was still angry. He went to see, and this is really something that like, I'm like, wow. He went to see a psychiatrist. Um, oh, wow. So I thought that was very progressive of him. He went to see a psychiatrist, and he told her everything. He told her about his paranoia, his rage, the snake handling, everything. And she diagnosed him as being post-traumatic stress disorder or having post-traumatic no stress. Shit. Right. Well, obviously, Holy I mean, cow. his dad dies, like, in front of you with bit, snake. He, bit then in the he eye with a rattlesnake. in the eye, right? Um, and so he starts receiving treatment. His anxiety starts lifting, and his head starts to clear. He sold his gun. His guns. I was going to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sold his guns. Which one? Right. Um, 
he took up and became pastor of his little community church. Um, and in his sermon, <laughs> I love this quote, in his sermon, he talked about his backsliding. He said, everyone in church has struggled with their own sins, but they using drugs or alcohol, soliciting in prostitutes, dancing in bars, or watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> Just pick your flavor of sin, right? Um, you know, so all of this is, is how he recovered and the church will take you back. And, you know, even though he questioned God, he never questioned the handling of snakes and this article. And again, I'll post a link to this article that I pulled this quote from. It said that when he like backslidden, uh, (laughs) he leaves work and he wants to get blackout drunk. When he's faithful, he leaves work and picks up a poisonous snake. Oh, my God. I so, thought that was part of the thing that he let go. No. No. So he pulled, you know, both pull him out of the mundane, out, oh. of that, out of that, you know, poverty level and into the extreme. He encounters both the sacred and the profane through rituals of escape. And, like, who are we to say that he's wrong in how he chooses to escape? I mean, some people's means of escape are starting a strange self podcast. <laughs> Which doesn't bite. <laughs> Which doesn't sometimes, maybe. So that's the end of the serpents under the rainbow. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's a good one, Patrice. Yeah. And I was very interested in this. I've been, and I didn't know that it was like 1910. It didn't happened like long time maybe it did but it was just gained popularity it's more recent than i thought it was well we were just saying not that long ago like how many churches still handle snakes right. and i figured and there'd be hand- more than you know there, but yeah it is it's still done in secret and it's still illegal and they know when the cops come what to say because <laughs> preachers get immunity for certain things put it down your pants <laughs> nobody will see it <laughs> where are you gonna hide it <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> well, mine is nothing like that at all. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I was telling, this is Ginger. We said hi to Ginger at the beginning. Um, I was telling Ginger, there are so many weird, bizarre stories in the South that it's it's really kind of hard to narrow it down, decide which one you're going to do on a given week because it's, we're just full of them. But full of um, I know. So <laughs> I was I was trying to like do something that was local to Nashville, and this one's not not too far off actually um but god it was there was so much shit it's like this these cities in like tennessee and georgia and like they're all so fucking haunted and north carolina too because we just came from charleston and we did savannah earlier this year it's like you can't walk a step without walking on dead people are you doing um, haunted something it's not exactly haunted no it is actually it's not haunted at all but it has to do with a haunting thing see it's very complicated there are a lot of levels here okay this is um so uh are you familiar with who Ed and Lorraine Warren are? This is so everybody's not. I figured like this is this is pretty pretty common, but not everybody. So I've got a little a little background. Um, Lorraine Warren actually died earlier this year in the spring. She died um, in April, I think it was. They were famous paranormal investigators called them uh, demonologists. I think was what they preferred to be called. Or she was. 
Uh, not a psychic. She didn't like the word psychic. No. But um, he definitely chose the word demonologist. They um, they tended to work in conjunction with the church, the Catholic Church, a lot of times. They were the um, they were the people who were behind uh, some of the investigations of the Amityville House. Um, if you've ever seen seen the movie The Conjuring or The Conjuring Two or the I think upcoming Conjuring Three or The Nun, which just came out last year, um, they were the couple that were featured in those movies. Um, so what they basically do is they would go into a place that people claimed were haunt was haunted and, you know, kind of deal with whatever demons were there or whatever uh, entities were. Just real quick, in that any space. Catholics in here? All right. All right. <laughs> I don't have much to say about the Catholic Church this time, so I don't know. I, I actually don't know how much they I know that they were devout Catholics, um, you know, based on the movies. I don't right. know. Based on the actual history, I don't know. I don't know right. how devout they were. Right. Well, there's the, like, if you don't know, there's a long history with demons and Catholics and the exorcist and the that kind yeah. of stuff. Movies. <laughs> um, oh, and Annabelle. Annabelle is another one of their stories, which I ain't going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. I don't like dolls. We don't do dolls. But, um, <laughs> So uh, anyway, they would go and they would investigate the paranormal. Um, most of the t they're from Connecticut, so most of the time, the stuff that they would do would be, you know, up north. They they did Enfield was in in um, Britain, Great Britain, and um, let's see. In the movies, The Conjuring, like Vera Farmiga played played uh, Lorraine, and Patrick Wilson played Ed. He was like handsome and chiseled. That is not what Ed Warren looked like. <laughs> he was like also Patrick Wilson just looks like somebody just shoved rebar up his ass. Like no matter what he does, but. Um, <laughs> They, uh, so they've inspired a lot of films, books. There's a lot of people that uh, follow a lot of what they did. And they did publish some books that were done mostly in conjunction with ghostwriters who would talk to them, interview them, take their cases that maybe didn't get made into a blockbuster movie and, um, and turn them into short chapters. And there was one that I found in there that I had never, ever heard of and I had no idea um, that this had ever happened. This was um, in the book Ghost Hunters. It was published in 1989. And um, <laughs> one short chapter is the little known story of the time that Lorraine Warren met the Bigfoot. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> right? I know. Which happened right here in Tennessee. <gasps> what? So, oh my God. Um, I know, every time I say that, though, it sounds like I'm like introducing a Scooby-Doo cartoon. It's no. like when Frankenstein met the Harlem Globetrotters. Or, um, but uh, so this was like about an hour and a half away that this Bigfoot sighting was. So um, just a little bit of background. I'm not going to go into it much because in our third episode, which was <laughs> like two months ago, um, <laughs> Patrice went in, into detail on like the history of the Sasquatch, the, you in know, the South, in right. the South specifically, like all the different name variations, all the different cultures that had. Sasquatch-like myths, um, and you know it's it's called. Uh, I'm sorry, Robert, don't cry in front of the Bigfoot. So if you're interested in more Bigfoot background, I would say go back and listen to that because I'm not going to give you a whole lot of that right now. She did talk about how in the 60s and 70s Bigfoot lore just exploded um, in the United States, and this happens in that time frame. Um, it was the National Wildlife Federation actually did a Bigfoot field study around this time. So there were there were and, and Patrice talked in in her segment about how there were a lot of scientific organizations that were looking at Bigfoot right around now. Um, I will say there were a couple things that I learned that I hadn't heard before that I just found interesting, so I'm going to throw that shit out at you here. Um, it, there was a 2014 poll that said even today, more
more Americans believe in Bigfoot than the Big Bang Theory, which oh, was interesting. God. And that even Jane Goodall believes in the Bigfoot. Oh. You gotta, if you're going to believe somebody, you got to believe Jane Goodall. No doubt. Um, but she said she told NPR that she was sure that Bigfoot exist. Oh, and real quick, there was a recent Bigfoot sighting that somebody posted like, Memorial Day weekend oh, in yeah? like Northwest Georgia. Oh, I did see that. Mm-hmm. Not far from where the not Bigfoot f- Museum is. Not far. The right? Expedition Bigfoot Museum that there we're going to go to this summer. Museum in Georgia based solely on Bigfoot. Yeah, okay. there is a lot of that. Um, and there, there was just one more random, I, this was just a random quote that I found. A guy named Dmitry Bayanov of the Darwin Museum in Moscow um, had a quote in there. All researchers versed in this science, which actually, actually I'm not sure what science he was studying, um, know that Bigfoot is a mammal, not a myth, because of the female's conspicuous mammae. And I was like, what? It's like, so Bigfoot has tits, so it has to be real. Like, that's what that says, right? Is that how, that's, that's how we, <laughs> that's science. Science. But um, anyway, so back to Lorraine Warren. Um, so in the mid-70s, uh, Lorraine and Ed Warren were at the Hermitage, which is right outside of town, right? Right here, fucking Andrew Jackson's, like, home haunts, like 15 minutes away. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were checking out one of the students that they were working with um, had done what they called a psychic photo. So they had taken a photo in the Hermitage, and when it was developed, there were you know apparitions in you know different garb. In in so they were going to investigate this this photo and and a little bit of the Hermitage. And while they were there, there was a reporter from a local paper that called them and said, "Hey, there are people saying that Bigfoot is trying to steal their kids, like an hour from here." So maybe you want to go check it out. And the Warrens are like, we don't do Bigfoot. <laughs> but I mean, like we're right around the corner, so we might as well go. And um, so they did decide to do it. It's so funny, though, because I was telling the story in my head. And in my head, like Lorraine Warren doesn't look like Vera Formiga. She looks like Amy Poehler. And I don't know why that is. I just it's really hard to take it seriously, though, now. Um, but so according to this book in the Ghost Hunters chapter, um, Ed Lorraine and a couple college students and two hill people was what they called it all throughout. The- I was like, man, y'all, come on. <laughs> I know you're from Connecticut, but they go they go trekking up where this Bigfoot has been spotted. It's in Lincoln County um, in, in Tennessee. So again, it's like, it's about an hour and a half away from here and south, yeah, south. Um, but uh, so Lorraine is struggling because she's she's climbing up these you know hills. It's the terrain is really rough, and she's a little bitty thing. Too, she's she's right? a she's a wee woman, and um, she <laughs> you like that? Yeah. She's a wee woman. A wee woman. Um, but you know it's it's kind of like some of the areas that you were describing. Like poverty is very raw up in the hills at this time mm-hmm. in the 70s in Tennessee and Lincoln County. She was seeing like places that she was describing as shacks where there was no running water, there's no plumbing, there's very little electricity, and she said there was like one power line like reaching to the top of one of the houses and whenever they wanted to turn it on it like lit up like fireworks um so it it wasn't looking great but again like i'm picturing amy poehler like climbing up a hill in sensible flats and it's just um (laughs) she called the people quote in dire need of dental help (laughs) she called them dirty and inarticulate but not in a mean way i'm sure um she said she was very she was actually very depressed by you know what she saw because she was you know she was actually kind of an empathic person Mm -hmm. and she didn't like seeing people that she couldn't help. You know, a lot of what she did was, you know, supposedly based on the idea that she was trying to help people. And um, so she didn't like what she saw here. And she was already, so she was already emotionally, uh, 
Bradshaw? drawn. Yeah, or, yeah she was she drawn? she was in kind of a tough emotional situation, right. you know, at this point. Um, so Ed and Lorraine find this town where these people have been saying that they've they've seen the Bigfoot, and they they take out a tape recorder, they start taping the stories of the people who who say that they've seen it, and. Um, one woman says her two-year-old child was in the yard just the day before, the day before they got there, and the Bigfoot sneaked up behind him and touched him on the hand. And I was like, I'm thinking, how do we define yard here? Because how does a seven-foot-tall ape-man, like, sneak up? How does it sneak, like, across well, any sort of open space? Well, obviously, Bigfoots are ninjas. Ninja Bigfoots. Because, you, I mean, you just don't ever see them. That's right? the variety that we're talking they, about here, you clearly. Know, they're not roadkill on the you know, highway. I know. So, you know. I, well, that's true. But, I mean, I think your car might be roadkill if yeah, you hit it on the highway. Absolutely, really. Um, but, yeah, so uh, so they've had this story. You know, luckily, we've decided this is like the Harry Ann Henderson's variety of Bigfoot, clearly, because it just touched the child and ran, and not the punch you in the face and kill your dog kind. <laughs> But um, they have both kinds in Tennessee. We'll talk about that later. But um, the mother ran inside. She screamed. And a group of men immediately like grabbed weapons, ran out to get the Bigfoot. But they couldn't find it. They followed it as far as they could. And um, the book says uh, they decided that they wanted to follow this this path where the, the family said that the Bigfoot went. So the rest of the day is spent climbing hills and, quote, flicking chiggers from clothes and body to find where the Squatch went. And I'm like, is this Lorraine Warren's first experience with chiggers? Because that may be the scariest fucking thing she He's ever seen. Well, like, how big are their chiggers? I mean, like, <laughs> can you? I know. God. Can you? They're just, like little monster chiggers. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so about 4:30 that afternoon, they've been doing this all day. They they find this swath of grass that's obviously been beaten down by some large thing, you know. Um, and Lorraine leans against a tree to rest, and she says, suddenly in her mind, she gets a very clear picture of this ape man. And she describes it as a tall, slope-shouldered animal with very long arms covered in shaggy hair. His face was flat with a protruding bony shelf above the eyes. And she said that his eyes shone with intelligence, compassion, and fear. That was her descri- description. Um, and she said he was telepathically sending his feelings to her. Oh, damn. So this is all her, her mental picture of this, this Bigfoot. Um, and there are actually other people who've thought who've said before that Bigfoot is are psychic, tele- telepathic. Oh my god! I don't know, but Lorraine Warren is the only one who said she's communicated with one. I think telepathically, okay. or I could be wrong. I just made that up. Um, <laughs> so he sends her an image then of a secret cave by a river where his mate and his children are, and she pictures it very. And, it, and he he sends this image of fear that he's not going to get back there because now he's he's being penned in by these people. He thinks all these people are going to kill him that Lorraine is with. Oh, he's not wrong. I, I was like they all came with weapons and they probably intended to kill him um but uh he shows her an image of his foot which is injured and it's just matted flat with blood so she knows that it's gotten hurt in this in the course of this um so i guess you know he's he's just focused on like missing his family at this point so he sends her these like very emotional you know telepathic messages so i guess if he's like sad he's like the sad sad bigfoot sad he's the sad squatch Um, sad sad squatch (laughs) she uh so she sends him a (laughs) sad squatch oh this is sad um she sends him a mental message then telling him that the people are scared because they think he wanted to hurt the child Mm -hmm. and so he's you know in his mental message back he's shaking his head he was just trying to communicate with the child because children are more you know tactile. i guess tactile i don't know what they are i mean children are more open maybe to, okay. to psychic or you know hairy men approaching not, them i was gonna say like they obviously weren't taught stranger danger but um 
So she tries to go in the direction she feels this creature is, which is she's like shoulder deep in brush. Mm-hmm. Little Lorraine All Warren. All the chiggers. Covered in chiggers. Um, and she's protect, she projecting images of her healing him, like bandaging his foot and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And so he's, you know, so she said that they were sending these messages back and forth that started feeling more um, companionable. You know, the fear kind of drove away. And, you know, but then she says he returns an image of himself standing on a cliff in the sunrise with a hawk perched on his arm. And the hawk rises and flies into the sunrise. <laughs> it's a fucking personal side. <laughs> I was like trying to why why that one like of all the things well I mean it was the 70s and we had like what was it the crying Indian that was like oh that's right yes yes don't throw rubbish on the side of the road yes so Americans uh, maybe I saw he watched TV and just drew from that yeah he's been um, but uh, so she's starting to make her way forward all of a sudden behind her she's she hears this bullhorn blast and um there's a kid in the group of students, you know, like I said, they brought some students with them to do some of this research work. And this is an asshole kid. Like she didn't like him from the time they left. She's, he's been getting on her nerves all day and he's got this bullhorn and he's like, Oh, Lorraine wandered off into the woods. I'm going to get her back. And he blows this bullhorn really loud. So all of a sudden, all these images in her head turn violent and scared and he's running and, um, he's in like severe pain. You know, he's, he's sending images of pain because, you know, he's, it sounded like it was he was covering his ears, like the the noise was as bad as the foot pain, um, and so all of a sudden it goes, it's gone. She doesn't feel anything after that, and she goes back down and she just like chews out this kid with the bullhorn, and then she wanders off again and finds this trail of she said more viscous than human blood, thick red blood going off down, and she said she did this by herself, wandered off and followed this trail until it ended at a cliff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a cliff with a hawk or not, <laughs> but, um, and then, and then it disappeared at the cliff and I was like, Oh damn. He's sad. I was like, really? And I guess uh, this story is like all about what you choose to be believe, I think anyways. And I was like, I, he did not. Well, I mean, we death. are talking about tele, I, we, I know, right. We're talking telepathic communication with, with an animal that we don't know actually <laughs> exists. <laughs> I mean, choose what you want to believe. And that's what I was saying. I was like, so if I can do that, I'm going to choose that he was like Scooby-Doo hanging off of a limb, like just, right just beyond reach, you know, yeah, and then as soon like as she turned by. around, yeah, he went back to his family. Oh, he totally did that. But uh, they're ninjas. Yeah. <laughs> So they go back and they tell, they have a friend, Lee Frank, who actually studies cryptids as that's his thing. Um, they go back and they tell him about it. And um, shortly after, I think it was, well, not shortly after, a couple of years after, in 1978, the, the Warrens and Frank are giving a lecture together at MTSU. And um, this was covered in the Daily News Journal um, by an author named Mike West. And he said nothing particularly interesting about it. But the best thing about his article was he ran two pictures of Ed Warren that are basically Ed Warren like lecturing. It's the same picture on both, on both pages. But the caption that he put was, Warren's portly appearance seems surprising when his investigation of such cases as Amityville horror is considered. It's like, what? It's like, He's like, come in. He looks. Judgy. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so they're lecturing and, um, it, it turns out that Lee Frank did go and investigate this Lincoln County Bigfoot after they told him about it. Um, and so, uh, he went and he did take a bunch of armed men up into the woods to the same place that the Warrens had gone to find it. And they claimed that they saw two Bigfoot together in a clearing and one of the dudes shot at it. And, um, when they turned around and walked away, he almost got hit in the head with a grapefruit sized rock. So, um, you know, 
vengeance. Um, Melvin Robertson was the name of the quote hill person whose kid had been approached by a Bigfoot. And um, at, Frank Lee Frank met Melvin Robinson when he went out there. And um, Melvin called him at like two in the morning and said, my house is under attack by the thing. And so, you know, Frank runs out there and he said, it's been making noise all day and I have this friend staying here who's really interested in it, so I took my kid out in the yard to see if I could lure it out. Oh my God. I was like, for God's sake, parenting Where's 101 your wife, is, your right? children are not Sasquatch bait. <laughs> but, um, so it charged through the yard and Melvin went in and got his gun. And when, when, by the time Lee Frank got there, he said he could hear something screaming in the woods and seeing like small trees being knocked down in the underbrush, but of course you can't get close enough because it's very thick underbrush. You can't actually see the Bigfoot. And they're ninjas. And they're ninjas, clearly. So um, he was, what's that? That was a cougar. That was a cougar. <laughs> no. um, or a bear. There are a lot of stories about Cougars, oh, that's, that's right. right, cougars do scream. And they sound like they women scream at or night. children, yeah. And they are large enough to push over small trees. Right. So that is most likely what that was. It was probably a cougar and mountain like, lion. here's my kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Tommy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, actually, one of the funny things in Patrice's thing about the Bigfoot is one of the one of the things that she researched was if you cry in front of a Bigfoot, it'll punch you in the face. And this sounds like that version that came out that day. But um, yeah, there was there was one other short story from White House, Tennessee in 1979. A crowd of dudes went out to avenge the death of five dogs, two pigs and a tomato patch that had all been crushed by the Bigfoot. Um, <laughs> but um yeah, so uh, those are those are my those are my Bigfoot. So there was one guy who said that um, his pig was on its back with its legs in the air and it looked like it was squeezed to death. Um, mm. Poor pig. But uh, yeah, so apparently Bigfoot is psychic. These are the things we learned today. Good to know. <laughs> Wants to touch your children. Who wants to touch your children? <laughs> That's basically the end of my story. I got no idea. That's a good story. Follow us on Facebook at The Strange South, Instagram at The Strange South Podcast, or on Twitter at Strange South Pod, and check out our website, thestrangesouth.com. And for extra fun and goodies, join our Facebook fan group, Fans of The Strange South Podcast. So, yeah, I can't even say it. No, I'm not going to say it. Sorry. So juxtaposition. I'm saying it. I'm going to say it, y'all. Just hold on. Juxtaposition. Thank you. Yeah, I know, right?